This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. So real quick before we get started today, um, I just want to remind everybody that our next study session is going to be this Sunday, December 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Um, And so if you guys are already Patreon members and you're going to be in the study session, I just want to remind you that you can send us your questions. It's best if you send them in advance. It gives us a little bit of time to make sure that we can get you the most complete answers. Um, And if you're interested in joining the Patreon group, and you're not sure how to do that, you can send us an, an email um, and we'd be more than happy to help you out. That's certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. We also just wanted to let everyone know that this is going to be the last episode for 2020. So we are going to take a couple weeks off through the holidays and then we will be back the first Monday in January with a new episode. So today, Amanda is going to lead the discussion and we are going to be talking about wrist and hand fractures. Hi, everybody. So like Alexa said, we're going to cover wrist and hand diagnoses more um, in this season since it's an area we didn't cover significantly in season one. Um, Again, these episodes are the goal is to keep them digestible. So we're going to break some wrist and hand stuff down into a few different episodes. We plan to include include fractures of the wrist and hand, which we'll go over today. We'll do an episode on soft tissue injuries of the wrist and hand. We'll do a couple episodes on carpal tunnel. And then we're going to have a bonus episode on nerve pathologies and entrapments at the wrist and hand specifically. Last season, we did one for the entire upper extremity, and it was probably the most popular episode and still one that we get a lot of questions and feedback about. So I thought breaking that down further um, to include one specific to the wrist and hand would be helpful for all of you. So the first thing we're going to talk about today in wrist fractures um, is wrist fractures. The management for these is either going to be conservative, meaning a non-operative approach, or a surgical approach. So that can include pinning, external fixation, or volar or dorsal plating systems. There's a lack of research to support conservative treatment over surgical treatment, but the research that is available indicates that there could be increased grip strength consistently noted at most data points in patients who underwent surgical intervention. So basically what they're saying there is the advantage to Surgical intervention is that at like three three months, six months, nine months, these different data points that they selected, patients who had surgical fixation almost always had a higher grip strength, which functionally can be very important. So when we talk about wrist fractures, we're specifically talking, we're going to talk about Collie's fractures. So a Collie's fracture is an extra articular fracture that usually occurs one and a half to two inches proximal to the articular surface of the distal radius. This is also known as an extension fracture of the radius, and it's most often going to recur as a result of a foosh injury or a fall on an outstretched hand. 
A Colley's fracture is going to be characterized by dorsal angulation with the traction injury on the volar surface of the bone and the compression injury on the dorsal surface. So essentially the proximal radius is going to shift towards the palmar aspect. Most of these fractures are going to be treated with a closed reduction and castings approach and sufficient healing is usually noted on x-ray in six to eight weeks. Certainly that's going to be dependent on each personal, each um, person's individual factors and, you know, if they have any bone density issues, that kind of a thing, their age can really play into that too. Fractures that involve shearing or displacement or have pronounced um, step-offs are where you're going to see those surgical fixations. So an early phase of recovery in a Collie's fracture management should really focus on edema management, movement of the non-immobilized joints, including the elbow, the shoulder, the MPs, the PIPs, and the DIPs. So really just getting them started on some basic hand movements, you know, helping them to continue to move their elbow or their shoulder. A lot of times these folks, um, you know, a lot, of, like we said, it happens from a fall. So they're very guarded. They're going to carry that extremity in kind of that guarded protective position. And sometimes by the time they get into therapy, you know, I've even had some of these patients come in, they were in a sling, they put themselves in a sling and then their shoulder and their elbow can be involved also. In cases of ORIF, Wrist motion can begin as early as three weeks post-surgery and six to eight weeks after a closed reduction in casting or, um, or external fixation. So really, if, you're, if we're talking about surgical intervention, um, you know, in certain cases, an external fixator is unavoidable. It's necessary. But if they can get away with an RIF, that's probably favorable because they're going to be allowed to begin motion exercises much earlier. The patient should perform active tenodesis exercises gravity-assisted wrist range of motion exercises, and forearm rotation exercises. And then your later stages of rehabilitation for these folks should focus on restoring wrist and hand strength, their muscle endurance, and any specific return to work activities. So whether that's like fine motor manipulation, whether that's kind of, um, you know, if they're working, doing anything overhead and they have to be able to handle you know, wrist extension, you know, with any kind of weight, you know, servers carrying trays, electricians doing a lot of stuff where they're pushing up and overhead, um, making sure that you're really working that motion with the amount of resistance they need to be able to handle. It's important to note that some prolonged issues after distal radius fracture can include that persistent ulnar sided pain, persistent edema. Um, it's often going to increase with increased activity including range of motion and strengthening exercises. So as you're seeing these folks in rehab, they may experience some of these later issues. And this is going to occur because 80% of the force transmits through the radius at the wrist complex with only 20% of the forces going through the, um, being displaced over the ulna. Although these issues are common, um, keep in mind that those symptoms of like swelling and pain can also be indicative of other more serious issues going on. Um, which can include joint instability, non-union or malunion, median or ulnar nerve injuries that happens, you know, subsequently can be CRPS or a hardware malfunction or intolerance. So just be monitoring their symptoms. Make sure that it, you know, use your clinical judgment. Make sure that it, you know, seemingly correlates with the type of exercise or the amount of exercise you gave them. If it seems disproportionate on a consistent basis, it may be worth having them checked out for some of those other issues that could happen. So the next type of fractures we're going to talk about today are carpal fractures. So the one that I think is probably most important to be aware of are scaphoid fractures. And so the scaphoid is the most frequently fractured of the carpal bones. This fraction, this fracture often feels initially like a wrist sprain, and that's often how it's initially diagnosed. 
Um, and therefore, a diagnosis of a scaphoid fracture is usually delayed in a lot of people, and therefore treatment's delayed. Um, this bone is also prone to non-union or avascular necrosis, so you will see an increased risk of those um, non-union or avascular necrosis cases if there's a delay in diagnosis. Proper healing is essential to maintain the structure and support of the hand, um, basically because of where the scaphoid sits. And prevalent malalignment in both the radiocarpal and midcarpal joints is really dependent on, you know, the integrity of the scaphoid. So the initial symptom of a scaphoid fracture is a dull, deep wrist pain. Symptoms are going to be reproduced with palpation to the scaphoid in the anatomical snuff box, on the scaphoid tubercle, or at the scaphoid lunate joint. If clinical presentation aligns with a possible scaphoid fracture, um, and initial imaging is negative, it's recommended that the patient be placed in a thumb spike, a splint, and repeat imaging performed, sometimes as advanced imaging. Um, this is a fracture that commonly does not appear on an initial image. So, you know, sometimes I've seen patients get like a CT for this. Um, treatment for a scaphoid fracture is usually casting from 8 to 12 weeks, depending on the location and the severity of the fracture. And if the fracture is displaced, or unstable, and in the proximal aspect of the scaphoid, surgical fixation is going to be required. And then that's going to be followed typically by 10 to 16 weeks of immobilization. So again, scaphoid fractures are really important not to miss. You're really looking for that um, tenderness. Uh, I think most often you're going to see it in the anatomical snuff box, but also be aware of the scaphoid tubercle or at the scaphoid joint. The next carpal specific type of carpal fracture we're going to talk about are hamate fractures. So these are most often going to occur at the hook of the hamate due to a compressive force through the base of the palm or due to a shearing force during um, like a forceful torquing at the wrist. So specific activities associated with this injury include tennis, baseball, and golf, just because of the wrist position as they're taking that force. And a standard x-ray may not reveal this type of fracture, and it um, some patients will require a specific carpal view. So the specific carpal view is obtained when the fingers are placed in full extension and the beam of the x-ray is angled through the carpal tunnel. So basically they have to, typically I think they take a wrist x-ray um, top down, they would basically need to turn the hand over. Treatment is typically going to include a mobilization and a cast again for that six to eight week timeline. And then when the that's when the fracture is non-displaced. Like all fractures, surgical fixation is going to be required for those that are displaced or more severe. If hamate fractures are missed and are not diagnosed properly, ulnar neuropathy can be a lasting consequence because the ulnar nerve and the artery pass just medial to the hook of the hamate. So again, that's hamate fractures. Um, scaphoid fractures and hamate fractures are probably the two most important carpal fractures to know specifically. Other carpal fractures can happen in isolation, but they're relatively rare. When they do occur, their most the most common cause, again, is that foosh injury, and the hand is going to land in that hyperextended and ulnar deviated position. Um, so that's a brief overview of wrist and hand fractures. I think it's probably the most important ones to know. Um, basically, just understanding um, your healing timelines there, what you're looking for clinically. I think it's appropriate in direct access cases mostly especially those scaphoid fractures, and then kind of your um, rehabilitation timelines post-surgical um, or post-casting. Alexis, do you have anything you want to add on wrist fractures or um, hand no, fractures? No, I don't. I think that was a great overview. Um, and like you said, I think those are the important ones to know. So I think that's perfect. 
Perfect. As always, if you have any questions, like Alexa said, please don't hesitate to send us an email. All right. Great. Thank you so much.